What would you do for freedom? Would you give up everything for it? Give up all life's comforts? What if this meant your efforts would lead you to a prison cell? Would you bargain the freedom you have in order to gain more for others? What if you had to pay the ultimate price for freedom and could not then enjoy it yourself? Would that sacrifice justify to you your cause? It's the life of the son of a British soldier which answers these questions for us. This is his story. Off the south coast of England, on an island called the Isle of Wight, in 1858, a child was born. His name was Thomas Clark. Thomas was the son of a British soldier who was stationed at Hurst Castle, across the bay from the Isle of Wight on mainland England. Scalefadigar. Hurst Castle sits on a spit of land which sits between England and the Isle of Wight. It was built by Henry VIII as a defence fort against France and the Holy Roman Empire as tensions grew between the three groups as a result of Henry's decision to create the Church of England. In order to protect the port towns of Portsmouth and Southampton, the castle was built as an artillery fort with large cannons placed across it in order to sink any ships seeking to travel to either through nearby opening in the Solent River. The castle soon became a symbol of power of Protestants over Catholics in the British Isles. As Henry continued to develop his church, he insisted that the higher classes convert to his newfound Church of England. The poor of the British Isles were ordered to convert in order to avoid execution and persecution. The Irish, fearful of the God brought to them by St. Patrick and who identified Catholicism as an element of Irishness, largely refused to convert. Some even went out to try and convert people back to the Catholic teachings in order to help them to avoid persecution in the afterlife for having turned their backs on the Catholic God. When those who attempted to do so were caught, it was to Hurst Castle that they were brought. In the 1700s, the central tower of the castle became a prison for those who spread the words of the Catholic Church. The tower was one large circular room. There are a few windows around it where cannons used to sit and a blocked off staircase in the middle of the room. It was in this room that these prisoners were kept. Food was placed into the room through a small latch at the bottom of the door and some men spent up to 30 years in the room alone. There were no toilets nor access to running water. It was in this castle that Thomas's father was stationed in Thomas's early years on earth. Due to the location of the castle, most days were spent training, preparing equipment to be placed on ships at sea or providing safe passage for British ships entering the Solent River. 
In the years leading up to Thomas's birth, he had fought in the Crimean War for the British Army. When the realisation came that Hurst Castle was holding most soldiers idle, the family were moved to South Africa without choice in order to manage the locals who did not favour foreign British rule. Here they moved between British garrison towns for a number of years. Whilst here, Thomas was properly introduced to religion for the first time. His father was a proud Protestant whilst his mother was Catholic. He had come from a higher class than his wife, who, when he met her, was just a servant girl. These two conflicting backgrounds often confused Thomas as to how two seemingly opposing ideologies can be so very similar. He did not understand how both groups could go to war with each other when their core messages were the same. When his father's tour of South Africa ended, Thomas's family moved back to his mother's home area in Dungannon, County Tyrone, where he began to understand this separation between Catholics and Protestants. It was a man called John Daly who helped Thomas to understand that the separation had very little to do with religion. He helped him to understand that religion was being used as a device to separate by the powers that be. Protestant was the title given to those who had mainly come from Scotland in order to prosper in the stolen land of the Irish. Catholic was the title given to the Irish not worthy of the land in the first place. He understood that politics and greed of powerful people abroad in England was the real dividing factor in Ireland. Daly taught Thomas of the United Irishmen. Wolf Tone's army of Catholic and Protestant Irishmen fighting together to remove the crown from Ireland. Thomas began to idolise Wolf Tone's work and, like his hero, he gained a great interest in politics, primarily the politics around potential Irish independence. Daly's messages stuck with Thomas as he soon enlisted in the Irish Republican Brotherhood a brotherhood of nationalists bound together in secret oath with the sole goal of liberating Ireland from British oppression. Their vision was to create an Ireland governed by the people of Ireland. In 1878, Thomas became a full member of the brotherhood and they quickly recognised his value to the movement. He was given a series of difficult tasks, being identified as one of the few who could see the tasks through, as he gained a lot of trust from the leaders of the Brotherhood. He became involved in a group which sought to disrupt British movement in Ireland, causing blockages on roads and beginning riots and protests. In 1880, one of the riots he was involved in got out of hand and for his safety he fled to New York to avoid being arrested. When he landed in New York, he quickly sought out and joined Clan Nagel, the Irish Republican movement in America. 
Clan Gael were made up of Irish men and women who felt a great bitterness towards the British Empire. Some had come to America as a result of the lack of opportunities in Ireland for the Irish under British rule. Some had come as outlaws for trying to right wrongs, and others were born in America as their parents had fled during the famine times and understood that they would never see the island their souls called home. When Thomas joined, Clan Gael were organising a bombing campaign of Britain. Thomas was one of the first to step forward to accept a role in this dangerous movement. Thomas understood the dangers of the role and he refused to let fear prevent him from being one of the cogs in the movement's machine towards Irish freedom. The idea for this group came from the great Irish revolutionary West Cork man Jeremiah O'Donovan Rossa. Rossa was the son of tenant farmers and he was exiled to America as he sought revenge for the horrors of the famine. His story, however, is for a different day. Between 1881 and 1885 this group placed at least 25 bombs in England. It was in 1883, however, that Thomas's time with the group ended as he was caught and arrested. He was brought before the courts in England and he represented himself. All sides noted how he showed remarkable confidence, self-control and a unique calmness. As admirational as they found him, Thomas was sentenced to life in prison. He recalled his time in Chatham and Portland prisons as an unearthly hell of invasive body searches, isolation, a regime of perpetual silence and systematic sleep deprivation. Thomas stated, This went on night after night, week after week, month after month for years. The horrors of those nights and days will never leave my memory. One by one, I saw my fellow prisoners break down and go mad under the terrible strain. His time here hardened his belief that the upper political classes of Britain saw humans as pawns to be played with. He became a lot more stern in his thinking and he believed he was now in a struggle between good and evil. The mighty English-born Irish Republican revolutionary, suffragette and actress Maud Gonne learned of the conditions Thomas was living in and began to place social pressures on those who held him. After a 15-year struggle, Thomas was eventually released. He came out a different man to the one who went into prison. His eyes were filled with fire his soul would steal and his heart cried freedom. Upon release, he met with Daly again and he was introduced to his niece Kathleen. Instantly, they saw something unique in each other and within a year, they were married. Kathleen too was a Republican revolutionary and they shared a very happy marriage. She is noted as being the only person Thomas could not keep a secret from, as if he knew something, she would soon know it too. 
Thomas find readjusting to life back in Ireland after his time in prison tough, and they soon headed back to America. Here, Clan the Gael leader John Devoy welcomed him back with open arms and appointed him the editor of the Gaelic American newspaper. Thomas showed that he had a great way with words and he was a very capable editor. Although he did not shy from the fact that he strongly believed that the sword was far mightier than the pen, in Thomas's time as editor, he grew the reader base to over 30,000 readers per publication across America. This made Devoy trust him even more, and he brought Thomas into the leadership's inner circle, where he learned and understood how they were leading their revolution. In his time back in America, Thomas would meet the IRB members who left Ireland to come to America for work. He found it strange and concerning that each of them told him of how they were losing faith with the Brotherhood's leadership in Dublin, and they were finding it harder to see the light of freedom. Thomas decided that this was not good enough, and he returned to Dublin. He found that the power had corrupted those in charge, as they were now no more than political dinosaurs more interested in titles than freedom. Thomas played their games, however, in order to gain trust, and he eventually found himself near the top ranks of the Brotherhood in Dublin. From this lofty position, he set about removing the leaders from power and bringing in a new generation of rebels to charge for Irish freedom. Young men and women of Ireland with new visions of revolution and with the drive of youth and energy. Whilst back in Dublin, he opened a newsagent's at the top of O'Connell Street, using it as a cover for their meetings. By 1912, he had masterminded a new leadership. With Sean McDermott by his side in leadership, they watched as World War I began to take shape in Europe. Understanding that Britain would be distracted by events in mainland Europe, the two set out to create a military council. Padraig Pearce, Joseph Plunkett and Eamon Kant were chosen as those who would work with Thomas and Sean to plan the Irish Rising. Pearce had had his membership to the Brotherhood rejected by the old leadership, but Thomas understood his new visions of Ireland were required in order to ensure any level of success. As the military council planned a parade through Dublin to gain support for a rising, Thomas's friend in America, O'Donovan Rossa, passed away. The great West Cork man's funeral was held in Dublin. Thomas saw his death and funeral as being the match the Irish soul needed to ignite its flame. In 1915, as Rossa's coffin was marched through O'Connell Street by the Brotherhood, behind them marched a two-mile-long group of Irish people. As they entered Glasnevin Cemetery, Thomas selected the poet Pierce to speak from the podium at Ross's graveside. In the graveyard, Pierce delivered a speech so powerful the Celtic soul awoke. 
from the graves of the dead rebels under the feet of the Irish men and women who stood in Glasnevin that day rose a new spirit, unafraid, undivided, undefeated. At the end of the speech, the Brotherhood fired three volleys from their rifles. Revolution had begun. Over the next few days, the people of Dublin began removing Union Jacks from poles around the city and raising Irish flags. Marks of the Crown were damaged on lamps around the city. The land where Cromwell once spilt the blood of the innocent was now rising at pace. Across the island, the power of the Irish heartbeat could be heard. Galway, Limerick, Cork, Belfast and Derry were awake. In 1916, Thomas and the social movement leader James Connolly formed an alliance. The Citizen Army and the Brotherhood were now a single fist of power. Together they decided that Ireland would rise one last time on Easter 1916. When Sir Roger Casement was arrested trying to bring guns from Germany into Ireland, Thomas pushed ahead with the rising. He knew once the British found out what the guns were for, the rising would fail without starting and he would be sent back to prison. On the morning of the rising, Thomas signed his name at the top of the Proclamation of Independence as the first blow made for Irish freedom. He then marched with the rebels to the GPO. After Pierce read out the proclamation and declared war, one volunteer noted how he saw Thomas sitting in the GPO. He spoke of Thomas. He was in civilian clothes with bannelier across his shoulders and a rifle between his knees. He was silent and had a look of grim determination on his face. I was greatly impressed by him. It was as if he thought his day had come. Over the next week, the 1916 Rising raged across Dublin, and as the days passed, the Empire's might began to weigh down upon the rebels. With the GPO burning, it was clear that the fight was coming to an end. During their final meal in the GPO, Eamon Dorr asked Thomas what he would like to do if the Rising was a success. Thomas simply replied, I'd get a small cottage with a big wall around it and I would grow flowers. After six days of fighting against a modern imperial army, the poets, farmers, teachers and tradesmen of Ireland ran from the GPO behind Theo Rattley's charge as Dublin lay in ruins. Thomas first refused to leave, saying he would stay fighting to provide cover. He was the oldest man in the Rising and was willing to go down fighting so young Ireland could live. In his own words he declared, You can all go and leave me here, I'll go down with the building. 
As the building crumbled around him, Thomas watched as the young people of Ireland ran behind the now dead O'Reilly as the machine gun tore through his dreams of Irish freedom. He gathered the last few rebels left by his side in the GPO and led the final charge out of the building. When he reached Moore Street, he found Pierce discussing a surrender. They argued heavily on this, but he eventually agreed. As Pierce left with Elizabeth Farrell to surrender, Thomas was left in a flood of his own tears. His dream was over. The rebels were taken away by the army and the rising was over. Thomas was brought to a prison cell and stripped naked. When stripping him, an old bullet wound from his time in the Bombing of England campaign didn't allow his shoulder to bend the way the guards were stretching it. They proceeded regardless and the old wound tore open. He was left standing naked as an old man in front of the nurses in the prison for humiliation. He was then emotionally and physically tortured by a man called Lee Wilson. This torture was watched on by Michael Collins, who years later in the Irish War of Independence sought out Lee Wilson and arranged for his death. At the time of his arrest, Thomas's wife Kathleen was pregnant with their child, but the distress caused her to miscarry. Thomas was trialled by a 15-minute court-martial and sentenced to death by firing squad. He made no statement from the dock, called no witnesses and only entered a plea of not guilty so that he could deny being a German agent. Thomas was glad he would not be facing another long prison term and he understood that his blood would join the blood of all the Irish who had suffered at the hands of British oppression for hundreds of years. He understood that his death would bleed life into a new rising. He understood that he would be remembered as his idol Wolf Tone had been remembered and this gave him some comfort as he faced the firing squad. He was to be executed the day after his court appearance. The night before he met with his wife Kathleen one last time. She said of this final meeting. Even then we didn't talk about anything, not about ourselves. We talked about the future and the future of the country. And he said, all of us that are going out tonight believe that we have saved the soul of Ireland, that we have struck the first successful blow for freedom and freedom is coming. But between this and freedom, he said, Ireland will go through hell, but Ireland will never lie down again. The following morning, Thomas was executed by a 12-man firing squad. The official record stated that, while his comrades died instantly, Clark, an old man, was not quite so fortunate, requiring a bullet from the officer to complete the ghastly business. Kathleen's request to have the body released so he could be buried with family was rejected. 
The official line was that the British did not want the rebel leaders' graves to become martyrs' shrines. He was placed with Macdonough and Pierce in an unmarked grave in Arbor Hill with lime poured over them to ensure they could not be later identified. Today's music was written, performed and produced by myself, Ryan O'Halloran. The story was researched and scripted by Oren. If you want to help to support this podcast, you can buy us a coffee at www.buymeacoffee.com forward slash we the Irish or leave us a review on your podcast app. Ryan is Anam Dom. Gorov Mahakut. Slán